Hello and welcome to the Cadaver Dogs podcast. I'm Rob Pasercha. I'm Devin Shepard. And I'm David B. Jacobs. And we are Cadaver Dogs. And oh boy, today is a really weird one. <laughs> uh, as usual, we have some films from one side of the earth and the other side of the earth with the same title, kind of. But before we get going, how are you guys doing today? Good, good. The Oscars are today. I know that like yes. <laughs> we're all going to see each other in person for the first time in like months. So I'm excited for yeah. that. No horror movies nominated. David and I were, um, as as we always do, just consistently talking about how Mia Goth was totally shut out from the Oscars this year or whatever. That's too bad. She's pretty cool. I know. Um, Did you guys see Infinity Pool yet? Yeah. yeah. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, the first half was really good. Then it was okay. Yeah, similar. I think it's worth seeing, uh, especially if you're a fan of weird like mind-bending films. I know. I think Brandon Cronenberg is doing a a great job of, um, you know, paying homage to his father, but also creating a little a little space for himself in the weird movie world. I agree. It kind of seems like he's interested in slightly different themes. Yeah, in terms of the the Infinity Pool, I think was especially interesting for me because it was about kind of privilege and <laughs> and an exploration of him being a nepo baby, if one will. I hate that term so fucking much. I hadn't thought of it in that way. I haven't even heard of that. But yeah, I think that's spot on. Speaking of weird films, I finally got the chance to watch Necromantic the other day, which uh, I suggest everyone watch. I'm surprised at how good it was. It's on Shudder, and uh, it's what you think it's about. It's about a guy who uh, digs up dead bodies and likes to fool around with them with his girlfriend. And it's German. It's from the 80s. And uh, it's not just a soft core. It is like a horror movie. It's fucking bizarro land. I think you guys should all watch it. Okay, as long as all parties are consenting. You can't consent if you're dead. <laughs> and that's a t-shirt. And that's mm-hmm. a t-shirt. <laughs> Rob like went off in our chat after he watched. He's like, you guys need to watch this right now. Oh my God. Wait, we're going to talk about it on the pod, but you have to watch it. It definitely shot to the top of my list. You said it's on Shutter. Yeah, it's on Shutter right now. It's really weird. There's actually a sequel also, which I'm going to have to check out. We should do some German movies on here, I feel like. Oh, well, that's definitely one we should watch. Oh, I also saw some other good shit. I saw Perfect Blue, which I don't know if you guys have ever seen. It's like an animated uh, surrealist horror movie, and it's great. I was very surprised at how good that was. Oh, shit. You know, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, because you think like, oh, I'm going to watch another anime. But no, it's it's like a horror movie. Uh, I don't want to say like Jacob's Ladder, but, you know, there's like some genre bending. It's like like Black Swan. Black Swan. Yeah, it's very much like Black Swan. It's very good. Um, amazing animation, too. Some people have accused Black Swan of ripping off Perfect Blue. Uh, but, but, I mean, we'll probably talk about it on the pod at some point sooner or later. Oh, and then also on Shudder, I watched Speak No Evil, which I was not a fan of, but I think has uh, mixed mixed audience reviews, very high critical reviews, which proves to me that critics are idiots. Oh, come on. <laughs> I really liked it. I really liked it. This is where Rob and I differ. I know David hasn't seen it, but no, um, dude, it, it it is a different movie. It's very slow, but it's a tonal piece. It's a total tonal piece. It's a very pretty, very tense, driven, terrifying film. I feel like yeah. I wonder, like, okay, you future. I don't know if you're gonna have kids, Rob, but you future Rob with kids. I want you to go back and watch this, and then like we'll see what you say then. 
I'm so curious. I mean, it was tense and it was tonal, but I just felt like it was ultimately like vapid. Because uh, I don't know if you guys ever seen Nocturnal Animals. There's the craziest part of that movie is basically this whole movie, but it's done in a scene and it's much more effective. And I think that's what bothered me about this. I've seen other movies that summarize this plot and its themes in like a sentence or a scene because I feel like it wasn't a very deep film and it was just stretched out over two hours or whatever, which it didn't need to be. So there's had to be a little bit more substance for me. Yeah, I mean, I respect that. All right. So you guys have also seen Screen 6 this weekend, I think, right? Well, not this weekend, though. We saw it on Tuesday. We saw an early screening. Yeah, Brooklyn Horror um, (laughs) is really cool. Paramount reached out to them and gave them a few tickets to an advanced screening. Um, Shout out Brooklyn Horror. I'm so that's so cool. Without giving anything away, because I haven't seen it yet. Is it better or worse than Screen 5? It's better. It's (laughs) it's better. Better. I liked Screen 5, but apparently I'm in the minority. It's okay. David and I were talking about this. There's like a lot of people really liked Scream 5 when it first came out. And now people are starting to like either because they've rewatched or watched it again without the hype of like the relaunch of Scream that people are starting to be more meh about it. I feel like this happens with a lot of movies. And sometimes it's just uh, people maybe had those opinions when it came out, but they were quiet about those opinions because they didn't want to distance themselves from the the seeming consensus that it's the greatest thing since since uh yeah that was me i was a little quiet about it i was like i don't get it <laughs> everyone else loves it i don't get it yeah <laughs> i liked it but i'm not like a huge fan <laughs> of the franchise so i wonder if that's why oh honestly when i think about it i don't think i'm the biggest west craven fan <gasps> blasphemy oh my god robert persia yeah <laughs> I like oh his my movies, God. but what do you? What about? Yeah, because you're not crazy on the nightmare movies either. No, what? no. My one of my favorite nightmares is the one everyone hates. Yeah, which is not Wes, <laughs> right? Yeah, but weirdly, you like the movie, which is just essentially a big love letter to Wes Craven. Hashtag for Wes. <laughs> well, that, that's fine. I mean, it's not him. Uh, like, I like all. I like pretty much all his movies, but I don't think any of them are particularly great. Like even, yeah. What did you think of People Under the Stairs, Last House on the Left, uh, Hills Have Eyes? Do you like all those? I've seen those so long ago, but like The Hills Have Eyes is okay. I I like Wrong Turn better. Rob, would you be able to quickly give your scream rankings? David and I have ours, so I know we can quickly give ours. But would you be oh, able to? I, I no, I, I don't know. Like off the top of my head, uh, the first one's the best one, and then uh, probably like four and five. Ah. I, I don't remember two and three very well. No, so I fair. saw them like decades ago. I don't. But remember. four, four would become before five for you. It'd be one four. If memory serves, I've only seen them each once. Okay, just as long as four is so up there. I don't That's know. All I care about. <laughs> I remember everyone loved four, and I remember I liked four. Four wasn't widely liked when it came out but people are now starting to realize that it's like the best one after the first really yeah, so many people hated it and i was like you people are crazy Devin, what are your rankings my rankings are one four which like it could be four one but one's a classic so i feel like it, it's what four is based off of there's no four without one so one four two six three five yeah and i'm basically the same except i put six above two for now so you're mm-hmm. one four Six, Six two, two, three, five. Three, five. So, so five's your least favorite. Yes. Yes. 
I got I got one I got one more film I want to just like okay. bring uh, attention to because for some reason it's like kind of hot right now on like the internet scene. It's Skinamarink. Did you see it, Rob? I tried to, but I had people over, so like I don't oh, think God. that's a movie. People were like, "When's something gonna happen?" Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm going to watch it. I watched about half of it, but like my brother was over, we were drinking, and I'm like, I, th- I think we got to put on something a little more lively. So we followed it up with. Uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Mm, yeah, that's definitely more lively. I've never seen Little Shop of Horrors. You would love it, but Skinamarink. Watch it, I guess. No, <laughs> God, someone explained to me why this is the great, like, why people are obsessed, because I, I truly don't understand. I, I think it has something to do with liminal spaces, which are kind of a rage right now with, like, the back rooms and all that. A liminal space is just something weird that look, invokes a kind of like nostalgia, kind of like strange Ooh. feeling. I, I don't know. I, I got to see. I got to watch the whole film and see like what happens. But th- there is this kind of like retro analog horror thing that I, I'm a really big fan of. But but you need to have a little more substance maybe. I don't know. Same. Like usually I love that shit. I just don't understand why we need like two hours of it. I, I just like it's a cool mm-hmm. I, premise, but I don't understand why it needed to be so goddamn long where nothing happens, hmm. frankly. And I, I, this movie, like, it, 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 it fucked me in the head in terms of, like, I started questioning my taste about everything because I was like, I usually like the weird stuff and the hype stuff and the, like, really out there stuff. But this one I just don't get. Am I getting older? Is my taste changing? I really went into a spiral. A spiral. <laughs> Devin, you sound like me after uh, Spider-Man No Way Home. <laughs> it had a terrible storyline. Yeah. It makes no terrible. fucking sense. It is so dumb. <laughs> I have a movie that will tie into what we're about to talk about, because there's another movie I watched this week called The House, which is on Netflix. Oh, it's a uh, stop motion anthology, and it's like, huh. it's horror-ish. It's really weird. It's very disturbing. Uh, Mia Goth is in a segment. Helena Bottom Carter is in a Sold. different segment. It's Sold. It's so weird. It's just like three half-hour stories. And they're all like very slow, very strange. There's a bug dance at one point. That sounds sick. And yet somehow it is also probably the least weird movie called House, which is (laughs) more saying about things that we will be talking about after uh, Devin has some plugs. (laughs) Yes, yes. I do have some plugs. I actually have plugs today. Um, So... David and I's film Blind Spot, which I think we had mentioned Woo! on here probably months ago at this point, um, which David wrote and directed and I produced an act in. You're welcome. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was part of this short program called Bloody Bites by Bloody Disgusting, which actually we discovered how to watch it. I think the last time we plugged this, we weren't sure we discovered. Okay, so you can find it on Screenbox to be pluto and the roku channel that was the other one yes and so if you search um bloody bites um we are season two episode four and probably my face will be there so yeah yay um there's another short group with us that i haven't watched yet but i will soon because i didn't know this was there so (laughs) currently they're doing the fifth season right now which i'm also in but it's not 
available yet. Um, but there's four seasons of horror shorts. So you guys should just watch those. I mean, they're free. It's it's to be and Pluto. Eat mm. is going to be in the next season? Attention. Oh, attention. Cool. Um, yeah, so you guys yeah. know Blind Spot is uh, it's completely ridiculous. It, it's a celebratory parody of uh, really terrible B-movies that we all love. So it's like a love letter to So Bad It's Good Movies. Um, it's about a slasher villain who has found a way to appear invisible by hiding in your eyes natural blind spot, which makes no sense. And that's the point. Um, and then at one point, my dad's in the movie and he asks uh, and he says, uh, uh, don't you know, this wood is abandoned. And then Devin says, why are these woods so abandoned? And it's it's I don't know why that line makes me laugh every time. But it does. Yeah, guys, I'll yeah. watch Blind Spot on uh, what was it? It was uh, Screenbox, Tubi, Roku TV, or Pluto. Check it out. My friends made it on the pod, and they're awesome. And it's a very fun watch. It's only it's less than ten minutes, I think. Right? Uh, thir- 12, 13. But perfect, like short horror film length. Yes. Really, really good time. So, starting us off this week, now that we're actually getting into the meat of the episode, is David B. Jacobs. In the 1970s, Toho asked Nobuhiko Albayashi for his pitch to make Japan's answer to Jaws. Ignoring that prompt, he instead asked his 10-year-old daughter what he should make if he made a Japanese movie. She told him Japanese movies are boring, then proceeded to feed him ideas he would feed back to Toho. Please excuse that backstory in the summary, but if you haven't seen this movie, you need to understand that we're way, way out of traditional narrative territory here. Uh, seven girls, gorgeous, fantasy, melody, kung fu, pro, sweet, and mac, yes, those are their names, are looking to go away for summer vacation. Gorgeous, mourning her mother and looking to escape the strange woman her father intends to marry, suggests they all go to her aunt's house in the country. They even bring a cat. Unfortunately for them, Anthony is still grieving for the fiancé she lost in the war 30 years ago, and is herself a ghost. And so, Anthony and the house eat the unmarried women who come here in revenge. Mac's severed head pops out of a well and attacks Fantasy. Kung Fu is attacked by some wood she was chopping. Sweet is dragged into a doll world before getting crushed inside a grandfather clock. Gorgeous sees strange things in a mirror before churning into fire. Melody is eaten alive by a piano. Finally, when all the girls are consumed, Gorgeous returns. But is it still gorgeous for Auntie possessing her? Uh, Auntie does a little dance as well. Gorgeous's stepmom-to-be comes by, hoping to amend things with the child. Gorgeous sits her down as intense pop music flares, then sets her on fire. Or something like that. Uh, with the movie that's weird, who knows, really. Uh, this is House, the 1977 Japanese film, directed by Nobuhiko Abayashi. Screenplay by Chiho Tsukatsura, from ideas by... Chigumi Obayashi, which is his daughter. Yeah, if you had mentioned, uh, this movie is very weird. <laughs> it is super I'm weird. i that so many times. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of impossible to do it justice in a summary because there is no stand-in for like experiencing this film. It is weird. It's very, very strange. Why do you think... Because the story is pretty simple, and I think it's pretty familiar. So why do you think the director chose to go a little outside of the box for this one. So a lot of it is he comes from experimental short, the experimental world. 
as well as commercials. The reason he was doing commercials is because he was kind of the one guy who's like, yeah, I'll do commercials. They're like short movies. Well, the other Japanese directors were like, no, no, that's beneath us. And he was like, it's not beneath me. I'm fine with that. And he brought a lot of those experimental sensibilities into House. Um, he, he has a quote where he was uh, talking about his approach to directing a movie. And he would think about, oh, what's the way I could shoot the scene that would be most offensive to Kurosawa and Ozu if they were to watch this? And then he would do that. That is so funny. Wow. Um, <laughs> it really it really does feel like it's, it's put together... Uh, in a, in a commercial way for a commercial, like that scene where the one guy's walking down the steps and he trips over the cat is so over the top. And it's got that weird, like happy go lucky music. And there's all these backdrops. Everything feels as if it's a mishmash together as if it were like a commercial depiction of a dream. It is very dreamlike, but I also got like, it also has like a very American vibe. Like you mentioned the music, a lot of the music felt American. It wasn't English. Most of it, so it definitely feels like it has a heavy American influence. It reminded me a lot of like slapstick '60s kind of like Yellow Submarine esque films. Oh yeah, I that see were that. very yeah, definitely music heavy. Yeah. Have you guys seen Head? Oh, uh, I have not seen Head. No. Head is amazing. No, and it's bonkers. It's the monkeys version of a Hard Day's Night, and they just dial it up to to eleven. It's brilliant. Strongly recommend Head. Um, if you like this weird shit, check out Head. <laughs> yeah, but there is, anyway. especially in the first half of the movie, there's this weird like uh, 60s, 70s surrealist vibe going on. But there's also like so many cool editing tricks that kind of hold up. I mean, they're not meant to look realistic, so they just look strange. But the uh, compositing and stuff looks ridiculously good for the time period. So it was made with Toho, which is the it's the same company that did Godzilla. It's the same company that did all of Kurosawa's movies, and they had their own in-house effects director, and which Obayashi said, "We're not going to use him. It's going to be me and the DP doing the effects because I want them to look fake." <laughs> wow. Yeah, I like that. And literally each day, he didn't storyboard anything. They would come in and they would figure out the shots like on the day, mostly. Oh, God, stress. Like when the girl has to dissolve in the water, prof dissolves into the water. The way that they did that is, okay, well, we'll hang her upside down. We'll throw her in there. And then we will throw blue paint on her because we're using a blue screen. So when the blue paint lands on her, hopefully that will make it that she's dissolving. They had no way of checking if this was working or not. (laughs) Well, yeah. And it also sounds like. Well, if it looks kind of crappy, like that just goes with the style. Exactly. So they like set up a style that like felt like it allowed for mistakes. It's very blind spot us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I like that there's there's um I feel like immaturity is probably the wrong word, but there is like a immaturity, freshness, kind of like a uh, very green viewpoint to that, which fits, I think, with like the younger themes that come into play yeah. here because it is very childlike. And I feel like if you approach this movie like a child or like a fresh filmmaker would, then it, it feeds into that a lot more. Yeah. I think the experimental nature definitely like was part of that. And it, it really does feel like the inside of like a child's mind, especially in parts where like she burns on fire and her face like slowly becomes a collage of fire rather than her really lighting, lighting up in flames. That kind of weird like juxtaposition of like extremely fake with like realistic feels like the inside of your brain when you're in that weird dream state where things are constantly in flux. 
Yeah. And it's like horror, but playful. Like that weird like montage music sequence they have where the song keeps playing and the skeleton's dancing and the ant is dancing and then the fingers are playing the piano. All that stuff is so strange, the way it's mismatched together. I've read somewhere that um, someone viewed this as a coming of age story and I like that viewpoint of it. And I think that ties into what you're saying, Rob, is I agree as you're growing up, you're kind of blending yeah you, the real world which is your adult self with this childlike fantasy and it, it doesn't necessarily blend immediately together but comes in kind of pieces which i feel like feeds into that cutout style like you were saying yeah and i think that plays into like the central conflict of the film which is like childlike innocence being in a way like encroached upon by two opposing forces which is commercial americanization And then also the trauma of the previous generation, like war-torn Japan. This is following World War II. So like the plot line is that they go to the house where their aunt is waiting in like perpetual grief because her lover never came back from the war. So Mm -hmm. she has to literally feed on top of her. But it's not like, I I don't know, older generations where there's similarity. There's a stark disconnect between the two different generations. This is frequently read as having some atomic bomb metaphors mixed in, which I know we just talked about last month, but surprise, it's back. Obayashi grew up in Hiroshima, and all of his childhood friends were killed in the atomic bomb. Oh, wow. So he is very personally connected to that. Uh, And when he was making the movie, he's just like, yeah, of course that's going to wind up in there. That's where I come from. And this is now the first generation that has no memory of that. And it is kind of this tension between those generations, as you say. No, I think, yeah, I think that's, that's right. It's like this viewpoint of what a generation, younger generation looks like. And I mean, we can speculate on what the the writer director um, sees the younger generation as, but looking through the aunt's POV, it kind of seems like she doesn't have faith or is a little um, upset about the younger generation being a little more happy-go-lucky, being a little more free, a little more careless, have a little more happiness. Then she's like, well, I've had to go through so much in my life. Like, it's almost unfair that you get so much vitality. Like, she literally had, you know, her youth taken from her because of this grief, which is, I think, why or part of the reason why she feeds upon these younger girls. Yes. There's a lot of envy there. And uh, it kind of feels like it's really important. You actually sent me an article about this, um, one which I didn't totally agree with. It's thought the central theme was that of marriage. But I think it's a little deeper than that. It's one of more like tradition. And marriage tradition is a very powerful form of tradition. So the idea is that the women need to be unmarried for the house to consume them because it's almost like marriage is like one of the first hurdles a young woman, particularly back then where they got married much younger, enters when they become an adult and they kind of lose this sense of like innocence. And the traditions are also carried over from the previous generation, whereas the innocence is in a way always starting fresh. It's like of the time. Because you grow up just in your immediate surroundings. So there's this lack of awareness of what happened before and what's supposed to precede you. And this movie seems almost like Obayashi is lamenting the the next hurdle his own daughter is going to go through. And that's why he's combining his fears with her fears of like, what's going to happen 
when I have to give her up to the traditions of society where she's not allowed to be creative in the way that she was. So I, I think the breaking of the fundamental rules of filmmaking are a whole part of this experimental process, which leads to the horror of the film. I love that. I love that a lot. Yeah. And and the moment of the tradition I see especially shown when um, we have the one scene with the PE teacher, I think it is, um, when the girls are at school and they ask or they say, oh, we heard you're getting married. Is it for love? Of course it's for love. And she's like, no, it actually was an arranged marriage. And then she looks on after them. It's kind of that perfect moment of showing like, here's the younger generation viewing marriage, viewing tradition as a loving relationship. And here is this, she's not as old as the aunt, but kind of like this middle middle ground. She is going through that. Like you said, Rob, she's on the verge of going into the full adulthood um, by getting married. And she's, you see the terror in her face in that moment of, oh, I, I no longer have that joy and happiness of thinking that you can be married for love because I have an arranged marriage. Yeah. And in a way, she's kind of the opposite of the aunt, right? Because the aunt kind of has this whole like mother goose thing going on where she needs to vicariously live on through the next generation. And by doing so, she stifles their future. Whereas the teacher can look on with nostalgia and it's sad, but at least she allows them to live on with their own lives. So I think it's kind of commenting in a way on almost helicopter parenting. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, there's also a bitterness that's expressed not just through any of the, the, the those characters, but through the filmmaking itself in that like when the girls are getting killed and torn up into pieces and whatnot a lot of the time they seem really happy about it like when, when melody is is eaten by a piano just like okay they didn't, they didn't expect to see that great um <laughs> and, and it just like cuts her into all these pieces and she just smiles and looks at it and goes that's naughty and it's it's very <laughs> like what <laughs> they are getting destroyed by the things that they love for the most part yeah like mac well, I guess we don't really find out what happens to Mac, but she turns into a watermelon, possibly. Her head's floating around, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, Melody, who loves music, gets eaten by the piano. Mr. Togo turns into bananas. Yeah, and Sweet is killed by the mattresses and kind of like turns into a naked doll. Yeah, Dolly. Yep. Mm -hmm. And Gorgeous becomes her aunt. Through like reflection in the mirror, like when she like through the beauty that she's like primping, it it, it kind of makes it seem like their strengths become their ultimate downfall, ah. which is really tragic. Yeah, they're they're kind of like uh, stagnated in their archetypes, right? Um, like gorgeous, pretty much becomes a portrait. She becomes her aunt stuck in the house. This antique. Yeah, it's also because there is nothing more to them than this one thing. It's literally their name. I think that's intentional because the filmmaker is commenting on how traditional society views women as their one thing. It's like, oh, you should marry her because she's a good pianist. Oh, she would be a good wife because she's good at housework. Oh, uh, Mac's going to be left behind because she eats too much. It's these like one like small defining features that like strip your individuality, which like innocence and creativity all about expanding your identity. Right. And it's like when you label things as people grow up, they become their career, their hobby. It's like one other thing. Like a lot of us probably have that, you know, like, hey, there's Rob. He's the uh, he's the grip who's always angry or whatever. <laughs> there's David. He's a script supervisor. Right. 
stick with me with this because I I like that. So then in a way, the house slash the aunt who feeds upon these girls stripping away their individuality through this, basically she's trying to recreate this tragic moment that I think probably the same thing happened to the aunt when the war happened, that she was this beauty with so much potential to like turn into, um, I mean, I guess we don't really know what her talent was. She has a normal name. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like she, she's forcing them to go through this, this tragedy in order to, to make them into women. Like you have to go through grief almost. Yeah. I I kind of agree. And it feels like there's like this pull, like the Americanization and, um, the filmmaker I can tell is kind of pro-Americanization because this movie is very uh, critical of traditional values, I think, like in an extreme way. I don't agree with that. Um, it's trying to say how sad it is to force women into this like pigeonhole of kind of like grief that, that they're supposed to be this certain idyllic way that we identify. But really what we should do, even at just as people, is trying to hold on to this innocent creativity we once had. Um, exactly, and that's why I disagree with you. <laughs> I don't think the Amer- it's pro-Americanization at all. i uh, rather anti that. Um, I mean, it, again, it's just treats all of these characters as uh, one-dimensional caricatures, and they have no identity of their own, and that lack of identity gets them all killed. Like, that's not that's not pro-Americanization. That's like, this is bad. You should you should just be people. When I say it's pro-Americanization, I think it's pro-shift from traditional values. Maybe it isn't strictly Americanization, but that seems to be what the kids are. And he seems to think whatever they currently are is good. Yeah, I agree. I think like he paints the beginning and these women in such a high light that it becomes horrific and tragic when the tradition does take over. And in that sense... That's why it's pro-Americanism because it it uses the hor- like tradition as the horror. It almost reminds me a little bit of like Under the Shadow. Yeah, a lot, which we covered um, actually in another yeah post post war episode um, that y'all should listen to. Why why does it remind you of Under the Shadow? Well, because Under the Shadow, uh, the horror takes on it's it's an evil jinn in uh, Iran, uh, post war Iran. The main character, uh, she's kind of haunted by uh, a traditional sari. It's a different. It's a different headdress. Yeah, it's a headdress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a traditional garb that women were forced to wear, and it's basically takes on the the entity takes on the uh, physical appearance of the traditional clothing that hides your identity more or less. Yeah, and in, in a lot of ways, it's it's about the uh, conflict between uh, womanhood and tradition and how one can oppress the other. And I think this movie is making a lot of similar uh, comments about uh, traditional society oppressing women. Yeah, but I don't think it's just traditional society oppressing the women in this. Um, I mean, Obayashi's intentions aside, because I don't know what his intentions are, I can only go off what's in front of me. The girls aren't being stifled by tradition. The older people are. But the girls are being stifled by their own inability to grow. Because they're killed by tradition. They can't grow because they literally die, though. They're being stifled because it kills them. Yeah, the, the, the tradition, like the old house, eats them. So I think it's saying like they all have like so much potential, but it is just destroyed by the oppressive, uh, what do they call it? The heteronormic, 
uh, system of marriage and traditional society. That oppressive weight crushes their individuality. Okay, I see where you're coming from. Speaking on gender roles, so there's a prominent male character, <laughs> Mr. Togo. Uh, what, what were your guys' read on him and bringing him into the mix? I love him. Um. <laughs> <laughs> He's ridiculous. Who eventually just turns into a pile of bananas because he wants bananas. Instead of watermelons. Yeah. Instead um. of watermelons. Uh, well, I mean, the girl fantasy is like in love with him, which is ridiculous because there is at no point ever that Mr. Togo is presented as like a traditional masculine figure. She just like imposes that idea onto him and then you meet him and you're like what this guy that was like the most realistic part to me about this film because i was like oh yeah we always have we all have those crushes that you're like wait looking back why <laughs> like especially as a young girl like okay sure and then he gets stuck in a bucket I-, I like when he turns into a banana because you know it's like a phallic symbol but it's also just like like a silly one you know yeah Oh, man, those guys are a bunch of bananas. Bananas. Just means they're silly. It's almost like this great, I feel like they play it up a little bit in this, they bring up the idea of like, oh, don't worry, we're going to get saved by Mr. Togo. And throughout the, the entire film, we keep cutting back to him as if he's, he is the, you know, knight that is coming to save the women. Like it has that idea presented. And I love it because it almost plays with our expectations there as, okay, as much as I don't want to believe that all these girls are just going to be saved by a man because that's a cop out, like, I see you're doing it, you're setting it up to happen. And then it never happens. And it's that fun moment of like, you starting to debate what you think is tradition and what you think, how how you view stories, essentially, and and start to question like how how gender roles are presented in, in stories that you've been told in the past. He's kind of like a Dickie Halloran in The Shining. Which is uh, Dickie Howard, if you don't remember, is the black cook who, who's like has the shining connection with uh, Danny and then spends like the entire movie or book coming to save Danny and then actually goes differently depending on which one. In the book, he, he gets there and he saves them. In the movie, he gets there and then is immediately killed. With Mr. Togo, he doesn't even get there. He just dies on the way. <laughs> Yeah. And he doesn't even ever find out that anything is going on. Which is ultimately <laughs> hilarious. I love how they play with that. Like, your knight in shining armor is coming. And then the movie immediately shows you he's not a knight in shining armor. And uh, he's not even going to make it there. And uh, it kind of plays on this idea that, like, you need to be married to become something. But then they're like, but what if this is your option? How does that make you better? <laughs> is he even a legitimate option? Like... I don't. I mean, he was going all the way there to meet her. I mean, that's that's not nothing. That's true. I, I I didn't take it as him reciprocating. No, no, no. I think it's just the fact that he's a man is like that's what it presents itself as because it's him and then the watermelon guy as the other man, <laughs> which is interesting. Who's the only guy? He's the only person left in this village, which is fascinating. Um, it's it gives the idea that the aunt first ate. I think they actually do say this. She ate all the unmarried young women. Yep. In the village. And then, I mean, I don't know what happened to everyone else. I assume they all ran away, um, which is so creepy. So so in a lot of ways, the cat is almost the source of her power. Like, And, you know, it's the iconic image that they have the T-shirt of and the cover of the movie. What, what do you guys think of that? So is the, So at certain points, 
it, it's interesting. At certain points, I thought the cat was the mom, like the dead mom. Oh, hmm. But then at certain points, I don't believe that. They're, they bring up the image of, of her dead mother, the aunt sister, so many times throughout the film that I was trying to figure out if she actually was like a ghost or a spirit or trying to figure out the relationship with the mom and the aunt. Because it is strange. It almost feels like images of her mother is calling her to her aunt's house in a way. But obviously the cat comes and gets her. Yeah. Bring her to the house. So she is, the cat is a a guide, a spirit guide, which I know does exist in Japanese lore. No. I mean, there's definitely a power to the cat and I think it's a feminine symbol. I don't. Definitely. Yeah. I had two thoughts. I mean, going off the feminine symbol, this is a very American way to view this. And I don't know if this would hold up in it being a Japanese movie. But my first idea when I was watching it is that a cat is often representative of lonely women specifically like, Oh, I'm just going to grow up with all my cats or whatever. And that's like a stereotype in itself so that the cat can kind of represent the fact that the ant is alone, which does that stereotype does influence witches as well. Yeah. Yeah, it does. And it does like fit with everything that's happening in the movie. So it could be that, the other thing, and I got this mostly just from watching a bunch of analyses, is that the cat could be the atomic bomb. Oh, please go into that. So a lot of discussions about the movie's atomic bomb imagery, like there is the one part early in the movie when you see the bomb and the girls comment that, oh, it looks like cotton candy, which is like, again, they don't take these things seriously. Uh, the cat is itself poofy. It somewhat looks like the cloud. And the flashes in its eyes could be the flashes of the two atomic bombs. Wow, that's really interesting. And I and I guess that plays into the idea of like uh, the previous generation feeding on the yeah preceding generation and the younger generation looking and just being like, "Oh, look, it's a cat. That's so nice." Mm -hmm. yeah. And the cat looks like a big ball of smoke. Exactly. Wow, it's all white and fluffy. Yeah. Oh, that that's a crazy image. Wow. I did just want to touch on the end of the movie before we move on um, because it ends with um, a, kind of like a little speech. So obviously it's important. So I just wanted to read the little speech and hear your guys' thoughts. Even after the flesh, one can live in the hearts of others together with the feelings one has for them. Therefore, the story of love must be told many times so that the spirits of lovers may live forever. And that beautiful sentiment is talked about love and the stories that we pass on um, about the ones that we love. And to me, that kind of reflects everything that we've been talking about in terms of tradition, right? Stories are, in a sense, tradition. And so I thought that was just a lovely little little segment that like, I think ties in the themes of, of tradition and, and yeah, and kind of just like the horror stories that we tell end up being the traditions ourselves. I, li I like what you said about it there certain aspects of tradition are uh, oppressive and others might not be. So it's up to us to kind of keep telling whichever stories we think are the most positive. This movie is very heavily stylized. It is wildly open to interpretation. My own interpretation probably changes every time I think about it. Um, and I, I think there's probably a lot of interpretations we haven't even touched on that we haven't even thought of. So uh, definitely please hit us up if you have something 
that you'd like to add, something that we didn't think of, something that we missed. We love hearing it. All right. So uh, starting us off with our next film is Devin Shepard. Life's a bitch, huh? Roger Cobb returns from the Vietnam War, becomes one of the most successful horror novel writers, and marries a famous TV actress, only to have it ripped away from him when his only son, Tommy, disappears. Man, such a bitch. But everything changes when Roger's aunt, the woman who raised him after his parents died, wow, this guy's seen a lot of pain. His aunt leaves her, leaves him her house. Now divorced and struggling to write his first nonfiction novel about the true horrors he witnessed in the war, Roger decides to move into the house to write and find solitude. Of course, that's easier said than done when he's presented with all these distractions. His next door neighbor slash fan, Harold, the hot blonde neighbor who swims in his pool, and oh yeah, the monster he discovers in the closet. His aunt always said the house was haunted. It was the number one subject of her paintings, surreal images of her home. She even said that it was the house that took Tommy. As more and more strange things happen inside the house, Roger begins to wonder if they're real or if they're just his imagination. He confides in Harold, who's worried that it's all a form of PTSD and that Roger could be putting himself in danger. Harold calls Roger's ex-wife, Sandy, who comes to the house to check on him. But the house plays a cruel trick on Roger and turns Sandy into an ugly, wart-infested monster. Roger shoots her, cuts the body up into pieces, and buries her in the backyard. It wasn't really her, right? For brevity's sake, and because I literally had to write this in 10 minutes before the record, I'll skip past a few fun and games for Roger tries to fight the monsters and go right to the moment where he looks at one of his aunt's paintings and sees the image of his son painted in the bathroom mirror. Rob then goes to the actual bathroom mirror, throws a stool through it, and discovers there's a world beyond the house. He crawls through what looks like the jungles of Vietnam and discovers his son Tommy trapped in a cage. He brings Tommy back to the real world to come face to face with the true enemy, Big Ben, the resurrection of a fellow soldier he let die during the war. He tells Big Ben he isn't afraid anymore, throws a grenade into his ribcage, and defeats Ben. Roger carries Tommy in his arms just in time to catch the real Sandy getting out of the cab. The family reunited once again outside the house, house, house. Directed by Steve Miner, written by Fred Decker and Ethan Wiley. Life is a bitch. There's a suspension of disbelief in how Rod reacts to everything. It would seem like he'd be way more down in dumps after, you know, divorce, kid goes missing for a year. That's pretty fucking wild. Yeah, his life is pretty fucked up. (laughs) It really is. And he has such a crazy, like, attitude about it. But, I mean, you know, it's a comedy horror. I think that fits. Yeah, definitely. It's when, like, I was summarizing, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, this is really heavy. But it's a really light funny film that i think like it is it also is very childish oh super childish and all the monsters um and i mean i think there's a lot of themes that go into their design but in general they look like puppets especially the two that are dragging uh robert up the chimney which is like one of my favorite scenes of the movie when he has to watch the kid i love this movie my dad used to show it to me when i was like seven eight years old and uh, they drag the kid like up the chimney and they're holding it. And he's pulling on the legs, which is so funny. Like you can't just like hang on a kid's legs like that. If I had seen that when I was seven or eight years old, it would have scared the hell out of me. Really? Those those things look like the really? monsters in the nightmares I had as a kid. Oh, shit. Yeah. And right. Like they it really effectively does that. It like makes it look like this scary, like uh, Chuck E. Cheese-esque uh, puppet things. 
You know, uh, what's that? As an adult, they look silly. But when I was a kid, that would have terrified me. What's that game? Uh, Friday Night Freddy's or whatever. Oh, like yeah. that animatronic horror kind of shit. I never played them. But the animatronic horror stuff. It's like prime time, like childhood nightmare fuel. That's the only game that I couldn't finish because it was too scary. Really? I, I never played them. <laughs> me either. It's an odd question. Like, do you think Roger is like a good dad in this? But as I ask the question, I kind of feel like we don't really see him being a dad very much. But he does save his son. Um, But I mean, I think the themes of the movie are talking about how his past is like affecting his relationship with his son a lot. Yeah, that's true. The movie does go a lot into into fatherhood in that in that relationship. Kind of the way that I viewed everything in terms of like, his son disappearing. So his son disappears under his watch. Um, just to give like a little more detail is that um, his they're at the aunt's house and the son is playing next to him while he's trimming the tree, while Roger's trimming the tree. And then his son like literally disappears and Roger thinks that he sees him in the pool. We don't know whether or not that's real. It's possible. We also see a car speeding down the street. It's, it's, it's an interesting, it presents an interesting like what happened here. But we do know that like Roger was there when it happened so there is some sort of like guilt that goes into that yeah and i think like that definitely plays into into roger's storyline a lot is is that guilt of whether or not he was a good enough father to let his son disappear just like it plays into was he a good enough soldier slash friend when he let his um his fellow soldier big ben get carried off by the so-called enemy to be tortured for weeks I feel like it's less about whether or not he is a good father and more about whether or not he thinks he's a good father. Mm. That I, I, I feel like he has all of these doubts and worries and we don't see enough to know whether or not these doubts are justified. But definitely he is afraid of his uh, PTSD leaking onto his son. And uh, I mean, I think the movie suggests that it, it is in a way because... His relationship with his son can't progress until he conquers, like, the skeletons in his closet. Because, you know... Literally. <laughs> literally, yeah. In, in, until he gets past the monsters in his son's closet, he, he has to realize that his own fears and his own inner trauma is what's kind of infecting his son in a way that's caging the relationship. Because when he breaks into the mirror and goes into the jungles of Vietnam, which is you know, the haunted house's interior, his son is in a bamboo cage mm -hmm. as if that's where like Big Ben was. So he needs to conquer this guilt of not killing Big Ben, who, by the way, is a complete like yeah. macho asshole <laughs> and a great character. Um, he's such a great character. Like that's the worst possible guy you'd want to be in the jungles of Vietnam with. <laughs> the guy who's like laughing and joking around loudly. And you're like, these guys are going to kill us. Chill the fuck out, Literally, dude. Yeah putting himself in, in danger like come on he yeah that was silly no i i totally agree and that's why i like that the disappearance of tommy is a little more mysterious because i almost read it as the that roger's ptsd was actually the thing that made tommy disappear that it it, it is his ptsd that has affected the relationship and so like metaphorically tommy is disappears from his life because mm. he essentially is, is pushing not pushing him away but un, unable to have a son because he is dealing with all of these traumas, like you're saying, Rob. Yeah, and I think that's really like kind of spot on the way you put that. Like, he can't have a relationship until he deals with his past trauma, and I don't even think it's just his son; it's also with his wife too. Yeah, like he can't connect with her properly until he deals with his dark past. 
Uh, really quickly, I want to say that scene where he looks over and his son is missing. That that really reminds me of Minority Report. I don't know if you guys ever seen that. No, oh, really, with Tom Cruise. But yeah, the idea is like uh, plot line aside. But the main character, Tom Cruise, his his inner trauma is that he was in a pool, very crowded inner city pool, with his son. And they're playing a game where they timed each other. And he went under the water. He goes under the water for about 30 seconds, pops up, and his son is nowhere. Just gone. And never finds him. And like that's terrifying. And this scene really reminds me of that. It's just done more dramatically. <clears throat> Less dramatically. Less dramatically. Yeah. yeah, well, they don't have a Spielberg directing. Well, l- less seriously. C minor is great, less but seriously. Steven Spielberg. Yeah, <laughs> I-, I like this movie more than Minority Report. Throwing that out there, they're two very different <laughs> films. <laughs> yeah, the and the the wife bit when so she comes back and she but she comes back as like a monster at first, and he he kills her in this very brutal way. He shoots her and then like continues to like chop her up. It's it's almost like I don't if it's gratuitous because she's a monster at that point. So fun but it's also like when you really think about it like what he thinks that he's doing is a little bit gratuitous yeah the women kind of get a bad bad rap in this 1985 you think so i mean yeah definitely obviously (laughs) well yeah i mean they're just not main characters but you know like he's the main character it's kind of like it's kind of the opposite like in house suit like the men don't really do much so in this one the women don't really do much it's kind of like the western version yeah, the wife the wife has potential, but then there's the neighbor who like literally doesn't really serve any. Well, literally her purpose is to be hot and then to to be hot and then to drop off the kid, you know, and then that's kind of like her purpose. Which is also like why would you leave your kid with this complete stranger? <laughs> that's not I, I people do stuff like that. Um I mean, I, I think uh Tanya's character like serves uh comedic relief, but it's kind of like Harold's character in a way, but it also shows uh, like him dealing with like being a single guy. You know, there's a little bit of that like reminder that, you know, you're a famous single guy. This is kind of some things that can happen. Yeah. But then it's also, it's, it's not even his kids, like, like Robert's character. It's not even his kids that his trauma affects. It's also other people around him. And I, I, I love that storyline for this in, in that, like, obviously Roger is, he is aching he is in pain and i love that he comes to this community he's like i want solitude but i mean what we see in harold aka norm because i can't unpicture him as norm um he forces himself (laughs) he forces himself into roger's life which is like yeah it's meddling and like questionable but at the same time like he really shows that he cares for this character and like shows him what love can be again and like it's kind of opening that door for Roger in a way because he calls his wife and he's like hey I'm really worried about him and like he does keep calling on Roger to be like hey you doing okay buddy are you doing okay and like shows concern that's a uh, norm from cheers by the way in 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 case anyone uh didn't recognize him it's interesting that the female characters are so disposable in this because the movie is really commenting on masculinity and like toxic masculinity versus this more sensitive masculinity that norm may represent here unlike his cheers character in this one norm is like pretty sensitive and 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 caring and warm whereas big ben is the the hyper hyper masculine 
spits out one-liners. I wrote a few of them down. <laughs> uh, you who Charlie is the best line in the movie, hands down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, I wanted to comment on um, some of that stuff. Like, I feel like it's kind of saying something about community that you can't just wallow in solitude around your past trauma. It is going to leak out and affect everyone around you. And this one, the, the neighbors are literally reaching out to him, which is fun because it's of its time. Like now, most people in suburbia, we're on Facebook and Instagram and the computer all day long, or we have to like go out to a, like a mutual meeting ground to connect with people. Your neighbors don't usually affect you too much in a positive way, unless they're like older people who are like coming over with, you know, muffins and whatnot. And growing up in a New Jersey suburban suburbia, which is probably not as friendly as some other places. <laughs> um, that only happened like a handful of times that neighbors came over. And it's usually because they like knew us somehow, but there was not much interaction with neighbors. Yeah. I yeah. also disagree. I, I don't think the female characters are that disposable. I think they're side characters, but they seem well-rounded enough. Like, like Tanya comes off as one way and then shows you she's a different way, which I thought was kind of a cool switch. That was a cool switch. Yes, I, I did like that. Yeah, but I mean, commenting on the on the community. Yeah, I think it. But and it, it's such a vital point of this of this film, though, is that support system because it is about Rogers, you know, come back into reality and, and ability to overcome this this grief and this fear. Um, and and we see that like you need the support of the community in order to do that, or it helps. Yeah, yeah. I also think with a movie this concerned with manhood, you kind of got to focus on that. Kind of like how How Sue, which we didn't mention this before, but it it might not actually be called How Sue. It's kind of like Ringu. It's just Ring and House. It's just it might be people's misunderstanding of the Japanese accent when saying it or whatever. But what for whatever reason but it became How Sue, although it was always just called House. The movie is literally called House. It's not the Japanese for, word for house. It, it the in Japan it is called the English word house. They they never had it. It never had a Japanese title. Yeah. Why is it? Why, even in articles and online, and when it was first like shown to me, it was always known as Houseu. I know. Yeah. Which that's is wrong. so strange. You can you can find like set photos where they have uh, their their crew shirts, and even on the crew shirts it says House in English. Yeah, it's um, so funny. It's, it's, is... it's not like a Mandela effect, but yeah, everyone just like started spelling it like the way that they heard it, heard Japanese people pronounce the word. Yeah, but it's just house. That's so funny. It, it feels like a Mandela effect, though, doesn't it? It's so weird. A little bit, yeah. Okay. Sorry, <laughs> um, that, that was a little tangential. <laughs> but but yeah, what, what do you guys... Uh... What do you guys think about the manhood and all that? Yeah, you were circling back to manhood, um, and David had had brought up Big Ben, Big Ben, and how he's like this very hyper masculine. Um, yeah. yeah, and I I totally agree with that. And it's it's this way it, when we look at it as a foil to Rogers' character, where yeah, when when Rogers in Vietnam with Big Ben and Big Ben, they go out to to make sure that you know um, they're clear, like they're, they're not necessarily scouting, they're just making sure that they're safe. But Big Ben pushes because it's this idea of like beyond just safety you have to go and like further protect people and he says that he can't stay in one spot he has to keep moving he has to keep moving but roger's like no i'm fine let's just stay here and it shows that like great moment where he, maybe roger's starting to question his masculinity because he doesn't have that driving force to like go above and beyond and be this macho 
um, hero, he has more of that protective nature that more like I'm going to protect myself kind of nature rather than go beyond to, to, to save others. I agree with all of that. I feel like a, a key point in this movie is like what makes a man a man. Yeah. So Roger, like he, he feels like less of a man because he has this trauma that is holding him back and it's stifling him. But even then his trauma is caused by him feeling like he wasn't man enough, that he, he wasn't man enough to to kill Big Ben and spare him from this. Uh, he wasn't man enough to to save his I'm not going to call him his friend because they were not friends, uh, but his his fellow soldier to save his fellow soldier by killing him. Um, and now it's like, does that mean he's not man enough to raise his son? Is he not man enough to be with his ex-wife? Uh, blah, 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 blah. Like, mm-hmm. I, I actually got the vibe they were friends. They were, it was just like kind of a frenemy situation. But I got the vibe like he's bumming cigarettes off him. They're joking around together. Like he really thinks Big Ben is an asshole, but I feel like he kind of like literally looks up to him because he's taller a little <laughs> bit. Mm. Like he thinks he's an idiot, but I feel like it's like his it's his partner. But I, I feel like there's a lot. They're very friendly. Yeah, I agree. It's a nuanced relationship, and I feel like what you're saying, David, he has to ha- look up to Big Ben in order to like feed that that idea that he is less of a man, right? Like otherwise, he sees B- Big Ben as that macho, as the ultimate like masculine figure. Can I ask you guys something about Big Ben? Because you said this in your summary, and uh, I, I wanted to ask about it. So do you guys think that Big Ben was literally resurrected? Or is it just the house? I think it's just the house. Yeah, I agree. I think the house plays on your fears. Okay. And I see I see this through, I mean, obviously, when um, we reach the climax, when when Roger defeats him, he's like, I'm not afraid of you, so you can't hurt me. And then he is able to defeat because he's literally overcome his fears. I see that also with the aunt. I mean, and I think the movie does a great way of mentioning of like doing this subtle um, character build of the aunt because we do mention that her husband died in a freak accident. We don't get the full details, but definitely something happened there. So we do know some like, and um, Roger's parents passed away. So we assume that, you know, obviously family members of hers have passed away. She's gone through this grief. She lives alone in this old house her grandson got taken like she too has suffered and she says in her um i don't know if it's a note or if she comes through the spirit that comes and visits roger um she says like the house got me and in my mind i read that as fear got to me uh warning here but i mean we do she does die by hanging um and i feel like that plays into a lot of like the fear leads to this what could be a suicide. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that's the real danger. It's it's almost like the house doesn't actually hurt you itself physically, but it makes you hurt yourself. Um that it is like all your all the ghosts of your past. Uh even when it's like when he's when he's shooting his ex-wife, like that's not actually his ex-wife. That's the house manifesting her. It's manifesting his fears that he might become violent because of his PTSD because he's heard that that's a thing. And now he's like, is that me? Is that something I'm going to do? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think it also manifests his wife as like the evil ex. Like she becomes this like overbearing monster. I think it does the same thing with the, with the tools. I think the tools are like the manly yard work coming after. Oh yeah. And they are the tools that he was using when his son disappears. Yeah. That's interesting. 
Oh, that's true too. Yeah, they're the exact tools he was using. I didn't catch on to that. That's cool. Yeah, I like with the ex-wife because it's a duality thing where either he isn't man enough to withstand her becoming abusive toward him, he is overly man and winds up hurting her himself and is the abuser. And he, he he's afraid of both at the same time and therefore is not sure how to react. Which we see in his first phone call with her when he's on the phone and he's pretending that he has this life, he's doing poker night, and then he hangs up and he's like, you're so stupid. Why did you do that? We see him like contemplating how to view his wife right now and how what his relationship is. And you do see love there still. Um, and it's just we obviously know there are extraneous factors stressing on that relationship. But I love I love that complication. I love it when he's pretending he's having a party when she calls in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, it's so good. I think that's so funny. Uh, speaking of movies, I, I just want to mention like Carrie visuals. Not that dissimilar from Hausu. Like, there's a lot of weird surrealist stuff going on there. But not as extreme. Do a lot of that in this other movie called The Devils, which you guys should watch if you've never seen it. Speaking of the uh, the styles of these films, we both we talked about how both of them kind of are, are lens of viewing horror through like a child's eyes in a way. And I'd mentioned earlier that I've seen, I saw House when I was very young. And... Uh, I remember not thinking it was particularly scary. I was probably like seven or eight years old, but I could see how I could see how those like puppet esque monsters are something that a child might imagine themselves seeing in the closet. You know, this yeah. kind of like Jim Henson horror story. Also, the monster, uh, Devin, you told me this before recording. The monster in house is modeled after a Vietnam. Uh, victim of napalm and has like bulls for fingers, right? Yeah, yeah. They mentioned that in the commentary um of house that they were trying to yeah recreate this napalm-esque that's cool character which is really fascinating yeah which goes which ties directly into yeah into um well now i'm gonna call him tommy (laughs) into roger's fears but i think you're right robin that like they have that one specifically feels more towards roger but the the little character the brown brown haired one that comes and pulls the other the kid up through the chimney. That feels like the most childish fear to me. That feels like something that Jimmy would imagine being uh, scared of. That looks so much like the trick-or-treaters in A Nightmare Before Christmas. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Those are like, fun. So much like it. <gasps> okay. That's going to be my Halloween costume. Okay. the Those two pulling the kid up in the chimney. I'm going to make Will do that with me. <laughs> We were going to be the trick-or-treaters from Nightmare Before Christmas right now because there are three of them. But oh, that would be cool, be good. too. We can do – there's multiple yeah. Halloween nights. We could do it. If you watch Scream 6, there's like five of them. So, you know, you can do a different costume for every single night. <laughs> One of these years, I'm just going to take off work like the two days before and two days after Halloween nice. just to have – actually enjoy it. That's cool. You should. <laughs> it is your holiday. It is. Yeah, so what do you guys think about that like childlike horror is that effective in these movies? What does that do for you? I know we kind of talked about it a little bit earlier, but now that we're comparing the two films. Especially especially what you were saying about Halsu, now that I'm like looking back, because I love those horror movies that call upon the inner child and like the the horror movies that are made for children too, which is I know weird for a lot of people to think about, but I, I love those. And I think it it really it makes you start to look back and look back at your childhood and see those moments between um, like we were talking about between child and adult and when everything was merging and kind of like 
re-examine them with a different lens and really question, was this horrific? Why did it scare me? Like, why was I not scared? I think I feel like it it just it brings you back to that place where you allow yourself to be possibly more scared or possibly more playful. I don't know what that answer is, but that's just like my mindset in terms of like where I am when watching a film that calls upon those those child like innocences. I think it definitely bridges the gap between the generations also. Yes. I guess yeah, I guess that's the root of it, yeah. Yeah, by being horror, you're kind of inviting an older audience to watch it, but then you're also allowing them to watch it with a younger audience. So by doing that, you can kind of talk about how the two different uh, generations of fear interact. Right. You know, in a lot in a lot of ways, um, like if you make a movie that's like two adults, that's about generational fears and the way they affect one another one of the generations won't be allowed to watch it because they're too young or they might not understand. But by making it scary for the younger audience, but also dealing with the way the older audience might interact with them, you have a movie that bridges those two. So I think maybe that's why these two films um, benefit so much from this style of horror. Yes. Thank you for taking my word vomit and making sense of it. Because <laughs> I agree. <laughs> It, it 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 was mostly whole food. It wasn't that vomity. <laughs> there there's also something with the the child versus the adult version of this, where as a child, there's more optimism in the world. I feel like you're a little more optimistic because you haven't gone through the trials and grief of becoming an adult. Hopefully, versus an adult's viewpoint, which is like a little more pessimistic, which I see a lot through. Um, possibly a character like Roger and the aunt in in House 1977, um, which I know, Rob, you had a lot of thoughts about the optimism and pessimism presented in these films. You know, our, our last episode, we also talked about a Japanese film and an American film. And that was in the lens of like kind of atomic optimism or atomic terror. And this is the second film in a row where the Japanese one ended very pessimistically. Like everyone dies kind of, or even if they triumph, it's short lived. Whereas in the American one, there's this like constant progressive idea that we're always evolving and, and there is a way of triumphing over these struggles. Optimism. So, I mean, I guess you could view them both as like sort of cautionary tales. And Hausu is like, we need to be cautious of our past traditions eating and then destroying the potential of our youth. But in the American one, it it's like, you know, people who are affected so much by wartime trauma, they just need to be kind of aware of how it affects everyone else around them. So, yeah, I, I don't know why exactly. Maybe a lot of it. I wonder if it's deeper than just the uh, the damage of the war. This pessimistic outlook in yeah. Japanese films. Um, I think it also bleeds into like Korean films too, because a lot of Korean horror films are very pessimistic. Your differences between like the American viewpoint of this and the and the Japanese viewpoint of this made me think more about comparing the um, the Watermelon Man in Houseu versus and I, House nineteen seventy seven versus House nineteen eighty five with Harold's character. I'm still stuck on that. Like in the Japanese version the community that we see is like the watermelon man doesn't do anything to try to stop this from happening. He's separated from the house. He doesn't stop the girls from going up there. He shows them away the way, you know, whereas like Harold 
does everything in his power to try to stop Roger from hurting himself. I, I actually wonder if the watermelon man is even alive. Or if he's just a watermelon. <laughs> That's what I thought. He might just, because the other guy turned into bananas. Yeah. Maybe he was a melon, so she turned him into one. That would explain why he suddenly turns into a skeleton the moment that watermelons are insulted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, I I don't know what his reason is for being there. Like, why does he get to be? Yeah, I'm not sure. He's an interesting, interesting character, that one. Um, well, I do if I do want to move on um, from this discussion, because I think it bleeds into a lot about the genre that was chosen here. Um, both of these films are kind of basically a straight up haunted house story. So we've talked a lot. I think a lot of us has been have been saying different things from House 1977. We've said the aunt, the house eats, the aunt eats. And um, we've talked about in House 1985. We, I mean, we kind of talked about it. We we all think that the the house is the thing that is haunting Roger. But comparing that to 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 House Sue, what do you think is the thing that is haunting? the house so this really does beg the question of like what makes haunted houses haunted Mm -hmm. and i think what's neat about these movies is that it's not a spirit of a person that died because so often it's this house is haunted haunted because xyz died here and their spirit can't rest and blah 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 right and like that's the memory of the person in the form of their spirits but these films are haunted because of the memory of the war of the generation, the pain felt previously being uh, ascending upon the current inhabitants. And to me, that's that's pretty interesting. So I think both are like, whatever happened here is haunted, but it, it's saying that we can expand the idea of haunted houses beyond spiritual haunting. It could be generational haunting, which here it's in the form of like wartime trauma, uh, very specifically in house. I'm going to call it Haosu because 1977 is just a mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> but but in Haosu, I think I think it's broader. It's the generation as a whole rather than just the war. And although the war is like a very uh, pivotal point, um, a core of that generational trauma. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think that's really cool. And, and I would love to see like more filmmakers working on this. And I think I mentioned earlier, uh, Under the Shadow does this. Yeah. It, it talks about how the memory of a place doesn't necessarily have to be the spirit of a person. It can be uh, an event or, or a series of events over a long time or just a general sentiment kind of uh, descending upon people. So although like the house uses Roger's past trauma to cause his effect on people and that's how he beats it, it really is just that history um, affecting the previous generation, eating them, if you will. I mean, both of these films are called House, and the House is like the u- ultimate personification of of all of that. And I love that, like each each film is um, the characters coming basically head to head with the House as the representation. So it, it it is like all these things coming together in one place and forcing you to to experience the fear or that that history. I mean, it's it's kind of, it's actually kind of weird to call it a haunted house when you think about it because it's it's not really haunted. Like a haunting means that there's another presence within the house, but that's not the case. It's the house is the the thing that's haunting. Like the house is alive. It's 
like a haunted house, but it's really not, actually. It's almost like they're haunting the house in a way because they are they they are projecting their fears and their issues with tradition or society into this physical space which yeah and i i i love that a lot that like throughout the film i'm thinking of okay what is a house usually a house is a reflection of oneself it is a safe space for oneself it is like usually a place full, filled with like well, hopefully love and is a home, right? Like a house can mm. be be a home. But the houses that we're presented with here are not that. And that's what makes haunted house genre, the, the haunted house genre so great, in my opinion, is it's something that's supposed to be so safe that we make so terrifying. And both of both of these um, families that we see in the films, like they are broken. They, quote unquote, mm. are a broken home in house who her mother is, past her father moved away and is going to marry someone that she probably doesn't like um in house obviously he's divorced the kid is gone um yeah there's no they aren't homes yeah you know we really haven't even talked much about gorgeous's conflict in uh japanese house that with, with the whole thing where her father is remarrying and she misses her dead mother like that is a very key part and the and the final scene is really playing directly off of that subplot. I don't know. What, what, what do you make of that? How does that fit into the haunting of the house? I mean, for me, just what I what I said is that it's more of a um, she she feels the pressures of, of the family being less of what it once was. And, and because her mother is gone, I think she does kind of view as this woman coming in a, a replacement almost. So in that sense, her original idea of the family of the, the three of them is broken up. And we do see that a little bit when she's um, having flashbacks of her, her relationship with her father. I think he says that, you know, your new stepmom's going to mend clothes. And she's like, but I mended all your clothes. She, it's that feeling of being replaced that disrupts the family lifestyle. Yeah. And it's kind of cool how that's like a, a more modern family structure to uh, replace a parent with another like to be divorced and then go on and, and like remarry someone else and like the stepfather, stepmother. It's like kind of new agey of like, oh, we're going to be friends too because they're like a similar age almost. Not that that didn't happen in the past or all, but she tries to kind of like escape to a more traditional area even, like the rural landscape where her auntie grow is, is not like where she lives in like a city environment. And by doing that, like, you know, she kind of flees into the jaws of tradition in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do like what you were saying about, um, like, not just what makes a haunted house, but like what makes a house a house, like how we view that. <laughs> and like, when you say it's a broken home, what do you mean? You mean the people in the home are having troubles. You're not saying that the roof needs to be fixed. Right. It's not a broken house. <laughs> it's a broken home. Yeah. No, it's a, bro it's a broken home. Right. And. I think it's cool that like these films really have to do with how like outside world influences, not, not what happened in the house. Neither house is haunted because of things happening on the premises. They're haunted because of things that happen in some cases, very far away, like across the Atlantic ocean. These movies are both very open to interpretation and I'm sure that there's more that we missed. And I hope that uh, our followers will hit us up on, Instagram, Twitter, whatever you prefer, and let us know your thoughts. Do you have any of your own crazy takes? Uh, you can find us at what are our handles? 
at Cadaver Dogs Pod on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I we post a lot of really cool clips on Instagram. We'll post some clips from Houseu and House, and maybe even some of the sequels to House, like that pizza scene in House Four. Oh man, I never saw any of the sequels. I need to see them. <laughs> oh, they're so good. So now it's time for my favorite part of the show, which is the review section. Here we rate each film on a one through four bone rating system with half bones in between. Devin, what did you think of House 1977, also known as House Sue? <laughs> House 1977. I'm so happy that you recommended this film. This has been on the top of my list for fucking ever, and I hadn't watched it before now. So thank you for forcing me to watch it because I fucking loved it it is just it's so unique it's so fun it's so like let's just have fun with this movie um which i love let's have fun in a horror setting too which is like literally all the reasons why i love horror movies let's go super artsy let's go silly um let's go musical just like it's hard you i feel like you either have to love or hate this film because it's so hard to like really um put any actual like criticism on it um because it's just hey let's let's do let's do random shit um love the style love the concept four bones david what what do you think yeah uh house 1977 directed by nobuhiko obayashi fuck it four bones nothing matters yeah. rob you're nothing up. matters <laughs> <laughs> wow all right so super high ratings uh yeah, when when uh, I saw this movie uh, more than 10 years ago, I was like fresh out of college. And I guess that's almost exactly 10 years ago. And I remember a friend of mine was like, oh, God, I heard about this Japanese movie that's supposed to be like the scariest movie of all time. I'm like, all right, cool, let's watch it. And then we watched this movie. And I'm like, wow, it's definitely not the scariest movie of all time. But it is one of the most unique and interesting movies of all time. I think it's really cool. So I've seen it two times now. I just watched it with my wife. And she was like, what the fuck is going on when they had that little weird um, montage in the middle of the skeleton dancing and the song and the cat walking on the keyboard to the ant dancing who is no longer in the wheelchair. This movie is just such a good time. Uh, I'm going to have to give it three bones. I think it's great. Everyone should watch it. Who's a fan of the genre? Devin, what do you think of House 1985? House 1985, I also fucking love. I like, it's such like a Saturday morning cartoon horror movie for me. It's so fun. It's so kiddie. Uh, it has great monsters. But yet these like, like we were talking about these kind of really complicated, nuanced relationships that you see throughout. And I think it has, um, you know, a cult status for a reason. There is heart to this film, but it's also just fun to watch. And like, yeah, it's on the nose. Yeah, the storyline we've seen a million times, but like, I kind of don't care. I kind of, it's just like, put it on, eat your cereal and have a, start off your day right. I also like how they recommend all the, um, the, the rest of the, the, I guess it's not really a franchise, the rest of the films as well. They're all like this. I feel like in the same camp with all that, I think I'm going to give it three and a half bones. Yeah, it's high. I'm sorry. Uh, David, what I, I doubt it's as high. No shame. No shame. I love that description of it being a, a Saturday morning cartoon movie because, yeah, that's that's pretty much what it is. Yeah, I like this one a lot. Um, it, 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 it's kind of undermined by then watching uh, 1977 right after being like, wait, what? <laughs> but um, I, I don't know what to say. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. Uh, Steve Miner's best movie. 
Um, I like that movies like these can exist and be as weird as they are because weird is great, especially when it is so much fun and joyous and uh, Norm from Cheers is in there. And every time he walks up, I just go, Norm! Um, I'm torn between two and a half and three bones. Uh, right now I'll go with, I'll go, I'll go three. I'll go three. Huzzah! Wow. This is the first time in a while where all three of us really liked all the movies. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I love this movie. It, it holds a special place in my heart because I always watched it when I was a little kid. Uh, and it still holds up. Every time I watch it, it's really fun. As far as like haunted house horror comedies, like this, this might be one of the best ever. Uh, it's up there with House Sue. Uh, I'm a little torn between three and three and a half, but I don't give enough movies three and a half bones. I'm going to give it three and a half. Yes. Nice. This is great. It is so much fun. It has that great montage in the middle where he's cleaning up the body parts. It's it's so good. Oh, you like <laughs> you like 85 more. Cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense. It was a staple of your childhood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're both about equal, but uh, it, but How Sue is Stranger. It is. Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, that's what I love about it, because it's like, I, there is no other movie like it. Not really. What what the hell is that fucking weird-ass, like, Russian movie I watched? If someone comes to me and they say, oh, I just watched House from 1977, and I loved it, can you get, recommend me more movies like that? Then I would just be like... No. Godzilla? <laughs> like Jaws, Jaws, Jaws is just like it. Uh, it's just like yeah. Jaws. <laughs> you, you know, you know what what sort of in a small way reminds me of it? Uh yeah. V. V. The 1976 Russian horror film. Huh. I haven't seen it. You guys should check it out. The like the director Is that the one that's spelled V I Y? Yes. And I actually, I went on, uh, I forget the name of his podcast, but I, I appeared on another podcast for the, us to talk about it uh, like a year and a half ago. Cult Worthy. Yes, I appeared on Cult Worthy to talk about V. It's a fun little chat. But yeah, I think How Sue and V are, are pretty similar. So if you enjoyed this chat, then you should check out uh, Rob's chat on Cult Worthy. That's it for us today at Cadaver Dogs Podcast. Please have a great weekend. Goodbye. Maybe it was an illusion.